Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. Stephen Hawking turned 70 at the beginning of this month, January 2012, and to celebrate there wasn't only a day of lectures for the general public, but also a scientific conference in which some of the best cosmologists from around the world assessed our current understanding of the universe. Their lectures were pretty technical and hard to understand for lay people, but there were two titles of the program that caught our attention. One title was 380,000 years after the Big Bang, and there was a lecture given by David Sperger from Princeton, and the other was called The State of the Multiverse, given by Raphael Bousseau from the University of California. I caught up with them during a tea break to find out more about what they'd said, and I started with David Sperger. Your talk yesterday, it was called 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So what happened 380,000 years after the Big Bang? The universe got cold enough that electrons and protons combined to form hydrogen. So the universe went from being a dense plasma of electrons to a neutral gas of hydrogen. Radiation can flow freely in that neutral gas, so the radiation was able to travel from then till now. So when we look out the microwave sky, we look back in time, 13.7 billion years, to 380,000 years after the Big Bang, and the image we see in our microwave data is basically is an image of what the universe looked like back then. Mm-hmm. So basically this then gives us an idea of the origin of our universe. Yeah, so when we look back at that early universe, we learn, in a sense, two things. We learn the initial conditions, what was there 380,000 years ago that grew to form the galaxies we see today. But we also get a glimpse of the physics in the very early universe that generated those fluctuations. Because the fluctuations that we see 308,000 years after the Big Bang, fluctuations we, in the temperature of the microwave sky, variations in temperature uh, at the level of a few millionths of a degree. So they're tiny variations. But we think these variations in temperature were actually generated during the very first moments of the universe, during the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds of the universe's history. So we think we're actually seeing, in a sense, things that go back to almost the universe's emergence. The fluctuations we see 380,000 years after the Big Bang, or the universe 380,000 years after the Big Bang, isn't so different from the universe today. The temperatures are high, about 3,000 degrees uh, Kelvin, but those are not much higher than, you know, those kinds of temperatures you can easily achieve in the laboratory, and are not much higher than you achieve in some industrial processes. These are familiar temperatures and energies. The universe back then was also very simple. It was nearly uniform in density, very tiny variations from place to place in its temperature, a mix of electrons, protons, helium, um, radiation, and uh, dark matter. Um, but uh, you know, it's that you, that relatively simple universe is where we emerge from. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now you also said in your talk yesterday that the universe was simple and str- but strange, right? Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the simple model, is, is that just the standard cosmological model? Could you describe that in a easy terms? <laughs> so when I say the model simple, it's a model that has five parameters: the age of the universe, the density of atoms, the density of matter. The universe is not mostly the most of the matter in the universe isn't atoms. Oh, yeah, That's why it's strange. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. So the, um, how lumpy the universe is, mm. so how much the density varies from place to place, mm-hmm. and how that lumpiness varies with scale. Is it, are most of the fluctuations 
largest, the fluctuations largest on small scales or large scales. Mm. Turns out they're a bit bigger on large scales, mm. but the, flu the fluctuations are what we call nearly scale invariant. Mm -hmm. They have almost the same amplitude on all scales. Right. Now, once you specified those five numbers, the theory is completely predictive about the statistical properties of the microwave sky, what the universe looked like 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And it's completely predictive about what the statistical properties of matter on the large scale looks like today. Right. So to me, what's inc really incredible is such a simple model fits such so many observables. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned in my talk, the universe is both simple and strange. And by strange, I mean that atoms, the stuff that makes up us, makes up only 4.5% of the universe. Mm -hmm. The rest is in the form of dark matter mm -hmm. and uh, what we call dark energy, energy associated with empty space. So what, what does the model, does the model tell us anything about what we can expect for the future of the universe? Well, what the model implies you know, is that the universe is filled with dark energy and that the geometry of the universe is close to flat. This latter statement is equivalent to saying that the total energy of the universe is close to zero. Mm -hmm. This implies that the expansion of the universe uh, will continue to accelerate. Yeah. So in Big Bang cosmology, the universe has two possible fates. One in which the universe expands forever, and the other in which it collapses mm -hmm. in a big crunch. I like to think about this in terms of Robert Frost's poem mm -hmm. about the universe can either end in fire mm -hmm. or end in ice. Yeah. Our current data suggests that uh, the universe will end in ice, that it will become right. ever, le ever less dense, yeah. and uh, that stars will eventually get burned out, and that we will not be consumed in a big crunch, right. but we that uh, things will expand forever. Okay. Um, now, to be an optimist about freezing, mm. I think of what Freeman Dyson has talked about, and he's pointed out that if our ability to have intellectual thoughts become more efficient with time, and we can become more efficient faster than the universe expands, we can stay ahead of the game. And for intelligent life, the future could be infinite. We just have to, you know, yeah. be, the universe will get colder, yeah. but if we can do more with less, you know, something we need we to do in general, we right? We need to do that anyways, so we might uh, as well start. We might as well get yeah. started on this path. Wow, yeah. um, you know, we have to worry about a global warming, of course, on the 10 to 100 year time scale. Yeah, yeah. This cosmological expansion is a billion year problem. Yeah. But, you know, we'll start on one, make progress. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. And I was also wondering what you meant yesterday, because you said that um, you had a better statistical significance than Higgs, but you weren't going to make any statements yet. But what, what, for what, what was the statistical I didn't get that. Oh, uh, so... The simple model with five parameters mm. is a very good fit to the data, mm. but we can actually get a better fit to the data if oh, we posit the existence of an extra neutrino. Right. So this, um, I don't think we have a convincing case yet that we see um, this extra energy, but the data uh, is suggestive. And what's exciting is over the next year, the data is going to get better. Um, the Planck data should give us a definitive answer on that, and we're hoping that some of the ground-based experiments might do that on an even uh, more rapid time scale. So um, I wouldn't claim a detection yet, but suggest that this is something interesting to watch. Now, just the last question. During Stephen Hawking's life, what do you think has been the most amazing development in cosmology? Um, well, I mean, I think that the establishment of the hot Big Bang theory. 
starting with the discovery of the microwave background by uh, Penzias and Wilson and uh, the intellectual development of the theory. My next victim in this busy tea break was Raphael Bousseau, whose lecture was called The State of the Multiverse. I started by asking him what we should think of when we hear the word multiverse. Uh, it actually doesn't mean anything as dramatic as it sounds like. Uh, when people say multiverse, at least when I say it, uh, what I really mean is that the universe can have regions in which the laws of physics are effectively different from each other. Not because they're fundamentally different, but because the world is a little bit differently put together. Uh, for example, if, um, if you're a fish and you live in the water and the water is really big, you may not know that there's some other place that you call air or some other places which are completely empty. And the effective laws of physics in water are different. The sound speed is different. The speed of light is different. Um, the conductivity is different. And so you might think that the whole world is like that and there's nothing else. Uh, but then you realize that water is just one particular way of putting electrons and protons together. Um, and, uh, and there are other ways of doing it in which you make uh, other materials like, like air and, and iron and wood. Um, and those have different properties. So uh, there are uh, theories that we, we have good reasons to consider seriously, um, which tell us that the world that we live in should be like that. Um, it should have uh, widely separated, in this case, very large regions. So we really are like the fish in a very big fish tank, um, which have effectively different laws of physics. Uh, and the reason that we haven't discovered uh, that these are just effective laws is that we have not been able to do the analog of taking the electrons and neutrons and protons apart from each other and putting them together in a different way because the energies are too high that we would need for doing that. And you, you were saying, I think, that the cosmological constant, for example, would be different in each of the regions. Is that right? Is that That's right. So the cosmological constant is, roughly speaking, the weight of empty space. Empty space should weigh something, according to uh, all the theories of mm. physics that we take seriously. Uh, and the problem is that, in fact, uh, naively you would expect that it should weigh much, much more than what we know it weighs mm. uh, by, by about 120 orders of magnitude. So mm. it's a, a terrible... A uh, terribly bad prediction of otherwise a, a wonderful theory called the standard model that had been tested very well. And uh, the, the notion that really this is just one of many ways of making a three-dimensional world and that in these other ways of making three-dimensional physics uh, the weight of empty space will be different, that can help us understand why uh, the, the weight of empty space is so small, the cosmological constant is so small where we live. Um, the the, the picture that string theory leads to is one of uh, a very large universe with, with these different regions with different uh, low energy physics, the physics that we see that we're able to probe in the lab, and also different weights of empty space. And if the weight of empty space is too large, there's not much room in these regions. There's no room for complexity. Uh, there's no room for observers. So it's not surprising that we find ourselves in those regions where there is room for us. And that's it for this PLUS podcast. You can find out more about what we talked about here in the article Bang, Crunch, Freeze and the Multiverse on the PLUS website at plus.maths.org. And on the site you'll also find more material from Stephen Hawking's birthday, including an extract from his own lecture and an article version of a lecture given by the Astronomer Royal Martin Rees. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.